My name is Robert Schreiner, and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds, and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a producer, an engineer, a musician, and an educator. We get to talk with Mark Rubel. We'll talk to him about his band, his studio, and we'll even take a deep dive into his time teaching over at the Blackbird Academy. Now, I've had a chance to speak on some of the same panels as Mark and volunteer alongside him in organizations such as the Audio Engineering Society, the Grammys, SPARS, and many more. And I can't wait to catch up with him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Mark, sir, how are you? Fantastic. How's it going, Jay? It is going very well, sir. Very well. So good to have you here tonight. I cannot wait for this conversation. Joy to be here. Looks like a, a very nice backdrop you have there, sir. So where are you? I'm in Blackbird Studio F. So Studio F has an interesting history. It was built for a guy named Justin Meebank, who's yeah. probably the premier mixer in Nashville. Previously, they, he and Dan Huff would work together, the user producer, and he was in the next studio over, which is Studio E. This room was built originally for Justin. It had an enormous SSL console that went from wall to wall. And now it's been through some changes, and it's currently uh, mainly used for Atmos mixing, so mixing immersive sound that, you know, flies around and behind you. Those rooms are pretty impressive. I, I saw one the other day. I was just amazed by it. Yeah. It is one of the best sounding control rooms I've ever mixed in or been in. Uh, and then we also have another Atmos room, which is called Studio C, which is the one with all the sticks, which I affectionately call the lumber yard. It's built right. and designed by my name, George Massenberg, who's a legend. Yeah, I like George a lot. He's a funny guy. All right, sir. Well, can you just tell us what inspired you to get involved in the music industry to begin with? Pure love of music, which I think I've had, you know, as long as I've been alive. Just always loved music and and everything else, you know, as far as the music business and the record making part of it, it came naturally because I'm also interested in storytelling and literature and was a great reader when I was a kid and uh, grew up in a household and my father was a scientist, mathematician. Oh, really? And my mother was a journalist. And so the combination of abstract science, you know, where it's really as much poetry as any kind of like hard, fast stuff. And um, my mother wrote human interest stories. So that sort of portraiture of what's interesting about different characters you put them together and with a healthy dose of technology, which I've always been interested in, you get record making in a place like this. When you think about it, those are two artistic fields. I mean, people don't think of them as being artistic, but I would think of them as being artistic, especially when you talk about technology. I, I can remember as a kid, my family bought me 
what was probably a Radio Shack tape recorder. And that's how I got started was just this one little tape recorder. I would go around and record just about anything I could keep my hands on. Mm-hmm. You know, I would just record everything. And Lord knows I wouldn't go back and listen to any of that now. Yeah, same here. And my parents bought me a little battery-powered tape machine when I was eight. And I didn't have a record player until I was nine. Uh, <laughs> so I was actually making recordings before I was consuming them. No kidding. And I have those tapes too, and I can't bring myself to listen to them. But, you know, the, just the experience of going around recording everything and cutting up the tape and having fun with it. And you probably were like me and many other people in this field that you would take all the family appliances apart yeah. <laughs> and, you know, put them back together and often having numerous parts left over and just hoping that they, they would still work. Yeah. I could never get anything back together. I still can't to this day. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing apart part is most fun. Right. I can take things apart like nobody's business. I just can't get them back mm-hmm. together. I was talking with my students the other day about the fact that Radio Shack used to exist, that there was a place in every town where you could go and buy raw electronics and parts and kits. And at one point you could buy uh, re- relabeled Moog synthesizers. And I didn't know that. There used to be um, even more serious like professional electronic supply houses. There was one a few blocks from my house when I was a kid, and I would just go down and gaze at all the electronics and just bits and pieces and wonder what they did. And uh, I think that the interest of that, and also I guess being around a university where there were a lot of laboratories and you know places where you could see things put together and blown up was a good influence. So I, I know you're also a musician. Which came first, the love for production or the love for music? I think the love for, for music and probably the love for listening to it. You know, of course, everyone my age will say the Beatles, which so I'll say the Beatles, but really um, devouring every imaginable kind of recorded music. And I think it was unusual in that I was unusual in that even when I first got that record player when I was nine, it was a little bit of everything, probably due to my parents as well, but it wasn't just kitty music or rock music, but it was Baroque trumpet and Bach and, and uh, old, you know, field recordings and New Orleans music and that sort of thing. So I was on, always interested in that. Tried playing a few instruments, but didn't have the attention span really to be bad at something long enough or to go through, you know, reading scales and learning how to play, how much is that doggy in the window or whatever. Right. Until I stumbled across the bass guitar at the age of 12, which is a great low threshold, low attention span instrument where you can make creditable noises on it without much. And I've been doing that ever since. been uh, 53 years that I've been making semi-creditable noises on the bass guitar. <laughs> nice. Still I love doing that. a gig this Saturday. Really? Where are you playing this yeah. Saturday? We're playing uh, lovely Westville, Illinois. So I'll drive from Nashville to Westville, which is about six hours, and play a three-hour show and probably drive back afterwards, which is takes a bit of stamina and stupidity, which is maybe a good combination for being in the, in the music business. And, <laughs> Isn't that uh, how we all playing start? playing this band that I've been in for 43 years. I've been in the same band for, since 1980. You'd oh, think God. we'd be good by now. <laughs> but no, you know, we're just... Um, you could call it a band of brothers. You know, we, we've been together. Our new drummer joined us in 1987, and the rest of us have been in the band. <laughs> and we just, uh, we have so much fun together, and uh, we love what we get to do, which is more about making people happy than playing music or operating a musical instrument. 
Well, I'll tell you what, when you drive past my house on the way up to Illinois this weekend, just pick me up and I'll drive the rest of the way for you. Sounds like fun. I love road trips. We'll call it a road trip. No, your band is, is amazing. I, I like it. It's just a good time, you know. I think that's what it's all about is just making people feel something. And and happy is one of those things to make people feel. One, one of the things that I've realized I like about my band is um, the amount of chaos and anarchy that we have. It's almost a punk band in that way. We play 50s, 60s rock and roll. But I like the fact that we're always on the edge of control and the wheels come off regularly and things go wrong, even with the relatively simple music that we're playing, and that we laugh it off and enjoy it. You know, I, I like the the spirit of merry anarchism that, that drives us. It's so much better to me than seeing a band of people that are overly competent or overly secure. They're just going through the motions and that kind of thing. We really put a lot of energy into it. And I think to me, that's, that's the part that I love about it. Plus, you know, American rock and roll, the fifties and sixties is great music and super fun to play. Oh yeah. I used to say that's the time that I should have been brought up in if, if, it, if I could have, if I could go back to a time, that would be the time for sure. So, I mean, 50 plus years in the same band. Well, 30, uh, what did I say? 43, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Never expected, you know, when I joined the band when I was 22, that we'd be around long enough for, uh, you know, several of the members to be grandparents. <laughs> right. I don't know what that's like. No. Well, yeah. And, and everything that, that comes along with getting older, you know, it's just really funny to see us like, you know, getting joint replacements and, you know, <laughs> and, and thicker glasses and, and to hear like a, a, an aging rock band get out of a car is hilarious. Any aging old man, you know, making all sorts of groaning noises. But if you want to get older, uh, what better way to get older than uh, in a rock and roll band? And uh, getting older beats the alternative. So let's jump back to, to Blackbird. You're sitting there in Blackbird right now, mm -hmm. and you, you're the director of education over there, correct? Co-director, yes. Co-director. So what does that entail? What are your day-to-day -day activities like? Well, uh, a number of things. Mainly I teach. So it, it's kind of evolved so that the way our recording school works is our students spend half the time. there. It's a six-month program, and our students spend a couple of weeks making records hands-on in Blackbird Studio, which is one of the very greatest recording studios in the world. It's sort of like maybe the Abbey Road of the U.S., you could say. You know, it's just fantastic. So they spend a couple of weeks doing that, and then they spend a couple of weeks in a classroom with me, meeting people, taking trips, visiting studios, and learning as much as I can fit into three months. So mainly I'm trying to teach them a little bit of everything about the process of record making, which includes, of course, everything, because it's all about in some ways, the kind of person you are and how you think about things and the philosophy of it, but also understanding microphones and speakers and instruments and how to mix and mixing consoles and signal flow and the history of recording. And I teach them business and about copyright and acoustics and endless, you know, as endlessly as much as I can. And I bring in really tons of guests, um, many of them, the kind of the luminaries of our profession. But not just, I mean, I bring in lots of famous Grammy-winning engineers and producers who've made all sorts of great records, but also equipment designers, 
my friend who's a counselor who teaches him about how to interact with human beings, business people, acousticians, uh, people who have record pressing plants, mastering engineers, it, just try and give them as much of an overview of the whole process as possible. We go to Memphis for a day and go to all the historic studios there where they made the Al Green records and Isaac Hayes records and Big Star records and all that. And we also go to Muscle Shoals for a day. So that's the main thing that I do. And then um, we have three other instructors who are great engineers and great teachers, and they shepherd them through and kind of supervise them while they're doing the hands-on stuff. And then there's a lot more to it. Oh, I should mention we have another, so this is the recording school part of Blackbird Academy. And there's an entire other school that's for live sound engineers, so people who make PA systems and monitors and install systems in everything from cruise ships to theme parks and all of that. And that's a fantastic program, another six months. And the, the rate of people getting hired out of that is phenomenal. We had got somebody who just graduated from that program and her first tour was Metallica. <laughs> of school. We have another student, she graduated early on and uh, her first gig out of school was going to Cuba with the Rolling Stones. So not, I'm not jealous, but all are you? <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little. But any, anyway, um, that's mainly what I do is teach and um, put the curriculum together and keep things updated and, and all that sort of thing. Just try to keep everybody engaged and inspired as much as possible. Well, I know... Blackbird, the academy portion has, I mean, Blackbird itself hasn't been around all that long, but Blackbird Academy definitely hasn't been around all that long. And I was talking to somebody this morning that asked me advice I would give to somebody who's looking to break into the world of engineering today. And my advice was that in the past, you could learn this stuff on your own. The gear was at a point where you could learn it on your own and you practice enough and you get involved with enough bands and you just work and you could probably learn it. But I don't think that's the case these days, or at least it's going to take you much, much longer. The equipment is much more sophisticated. The technology is much more advanced that I think a program like Blackbirds is definitely necessary in order to give you that kickstart. And then while you're in there, it's like what you were talking about too. It's, it's as much networking as it is about learning. So when they're going through this this program at Blackbird. Do you find the program to be, even though it's it's six months long, which seems like a, a long period of time, that's still to me just a dusting. Do you find it to be more of an overview than a deep dive? It's an intensive deep dive as much as we can do in the six months. But when we first put the school together, I remember talking with John McBride when it was just him and me, the whole academy. And he said, you know, I'm worried that six months isn't long enough. I said, John, 60 years isn't long enough. There's never an end to learn, you know, of things to learn. And uh, I think a part of what we're trying to impart is an attitude of lifelong learning and curiosity. And in kind of the way a liberal arts education or law education should be is learning how to learn. But also, I think maybe what people get from being with us is they learn what's important and they realize the technology will keep changing and there will be new technology. And in some ways that part is easier to learn because you have YouTube and so forth. The hard part becomes sorting out what's correct on there and what's nonsense. But 
it's never been about the technology, even though it's a technical art. It's really about the art and it's about the interaction and the attitude and interfacing with people. And I think that's something that, that we can show them or hopefully exemplify or bring in people who exemplify different attitudes. And so that's important. I think one of the other things that's really important about our program is that we only let in people who are serious and really dedicated. It's not like some schools where you might have a large percentage of slackers who think they're somehow just going to, you know, make dope beats and get rich or whatever. Right. You know, we're, we're very clear that this is a difficult occupation. It's hard to get into. So one of the greatest assets of being here is their peer group. It's the, the relationships that they form with their classmates and with other Blackbird graduates. And we have really at this point a, a, an amazing network of people around the country and in other countries who help each other. And especially in LA, we've got a, a bunch of grads out there who work on each other's records and mix them and program them and, and produce them. And that, that makes me so happy to, to see. We've been around in uh, October, it'll be 10 years. For the Academy. Yeah, for the Academy. And I've been teaching since uh, 85, so I guess that's 38 years of teaching audio. So I've taught thousands of people audio and music business. You don't let go of things, do you? No. <laughs> why, why would we? No. So you've taught for that long. What's been the, the most memorable moment teaching? It's an excellent question. Uh, there are so many, but for me, it's seeing the light bulbs go off. Saying something and you see somebody light up. When I was taught music business, it was that way. I would mention an occupation or something that they hadn't thought of, or I would confirm something that they'd always thought. And to see people light up in that way is, is a beautiful, memorable thing to have happen. I also live for the first minute of every class. You know, being a, a teacher is a little bit like being an entertainer. So being in my band has actually helped because people used to criticize the band by saying, oh, they're not musicians or entertainers. And they go, that's right. Yeah. You know, we, yes, we play music and, and we do an okay job of it. But, but I think there's a certain amount of, of theater to teaching and there's a lot of communication to it. And so to come in with the right attitude and to get everything started off, I think is, is critically important. And to set the right tone and the right mood and to come in with the right level of enthusiasm, that's the kind of thing that can kickstart or slingshot them into an entire career because they're nervous or they feel out of place. Everyone feels imposter syndrome unless they're a sociopath, yeah. most of them. And so I love that moment of that first minute of class. And I liken it to the first minute of a gig with something that we're really good at, if I could say so in my band, reading audiences and trying to figure out what their group personality is, what the mass personality is, and knowing when to take them on a left turn, and when to slow things down, and when to build them up, and how to take them on a, a journey and keep them engaged, right? And that's really the job, not only of teaching, but of making records. We are storytellers. And so to understand how to pull somebody into a story, compel them, engage them with a character and, and want to find out more, to engender curiosity, I think, may be the greatest art of teaching. 
you mentioned a lot of things there that just strike a chord with me. I taught for years and I used to be a, a stand-up comic and I used to think that those two things belong together, you know, being able to stand up in front of a room, address 30 plus people and keep them engaged the entire time you're teaching them something that is otherwise pretty sterile. I mean, you're you're teaching them something that's very scientific and if you can make them laugh and join in and be part of it, I think they buy into it more. And then I would find if I did a good job, I would always notice that there'd be more activity in the hallway after the class. So when I would leave the classroom, I'd get a lot of people coming up to me and asking me questions. And like you said, I think that's the engagement that you need to get somebody involved. And then it does, it does affect a career. Like you said, you have people working in LA together and they work as a team and they do that because of the foundation you gave them, not because of the networking they did on their own. They got excited about something you taught them in class. And that's what kind of gels them together. So are there any other similarities that you drew from your time in the band to your time teaching? Well, I think that being in the band, getting to play that music from the 50s and 60s, which is such a golden era of everything, you know, golden era of songwriting and arranging and musicianship and record production and recording studios and so forth, in race cars and motorcycles, and I, I did that too. Did you? <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the other side. I used to race motorcycles, which oh, is oh really? I, I don't know. I partly did it for the sound. That's a whole other avenue. But uh, <laughs> I think to inhabit that music from the inside, you know, the way the, that our band has had to, you know, we go, well, we want to do this song by Paul Revere and the Raiders or whoever it is, the Turtles, and to to take it apart and figure out how they built the harmonies, how the song arranges and how it flows all the little tricks and counter rhythms and everything that they did to make it interesting and especially to be a bass player when i'm not wearing funny hats and throwing tennis rackets around the stage <laughs> when you know when you're following the the way that they built the foundation of a song and tied everything together and built it up from that is great experience for record production I mean, it really is you know if you're going to be a painter you would want to go to the art museum and really look at how everybody puts the compositions together and what choices they make. And you can do the same by listening to records, which we do all the time, picking it apart. But, but to live it that way and then play the songs over and over again, it, it gets in your DNA. And I think that's great training for making records and hopefully communicating to young people how to make records, maybe what's what's important, try to help them put things in priority. One of the things that I think about with young people learning the art of recording is that it, it is much different from how it was when I learned it, probably you, which is when we opened my first studio, with, when I and other people opened our first studio in 1980, we had four tracks. We had a four-track tape machine. Yeah. At least we didn't start mono, but we started with four tracks and it was very much of an additive process, like learning to make a record on four tracks. And then when we went to eight tracks, it was amazing and new vistas opened and it was incredible. And we'd buy a microphone or a reverb and it was the most incredible thing, you know, every time we had more capability. So it was very much of an additive process building from the basics. And now if a student, as they all do, has a laptop with digital audio workstation on it. They have more power 
than in any of the studios of the 50s or 60s. They have access to synthesizers that didn't even exist. They have access to more processing power than existed in the biggest studios of, the, of that time. And so it's a reductive or subtractive process. They're besieged with options. Some of them sound good, some of them don't, but they have no real framework to fit it into. And I think that that's part of, of what I try to do and what we try to do is to give, give them, not impose our own, but to help them develop a philosophical framework that, of why it's important, what music means, what record making and, and or storytelling through record making means in different ways that you could build it. And I think it helps for them to start building that philosophical framework so that they can engage in critical listening and critical thinking. And that way, you know, even though they have an array of a hundred plugins that they could put on something and they have no idea, so they just keep slathering them on, <laughs> you know, if, if they learn to ask the proper questions, that's what science is, right? It's not the answers, it's what questions you ask. And if, you, if they learn to ask the proper question, which is, what are we trying to say here? What is this character that we're portraying? And where are they? And what's the emotion? And what's the experience? All the little details like what plugin to use fall into place if you understand what you're getting at. Otherwise, it's just sort of randomly picking from different flavors and mashing stuff together, hoping you stumble across something that works, which can also probably yield useful results eventually. But it's, it's such a shotgun approach. I think it helps for us to help them learn to focus. I think you're right. I think what ends up happening is we see racks of gear or plug-in gear and people think I, I need to use it. I have it. Other people use this piece of equipment or this plug-in and I need to use it. But what they don't realize is that other people are using those plug-ins or those pieces of gear when necessary or when there's a purpose for using it. We're not just using it for the sake of using it. I've worked in several of the recording schools over the years and enjoyed every bit of my time at each one of them. And they each had their own different approach to the way they were teaching and what they wanted to teach and the programs that they put together. So putting together a six-month program, I would normally think it's hard. But at Blackbird and the, the crew of people that are over there and the studios that are over there, and then if you're being selected with your students, I think it's, it's definitely a possibility. But how are you being selective with the students? Uh, excellent question. And the answer may surprise you, which is we don't select the students on the basis of what they know. We can teach them those things. And in fact, some students who've been through recording programs or spent too much time on YouTube have to sort of forget some of the things that they Unlearned. think they've learned and, and, and reorient. Uh, we select them on the basis of attitude, work ethic, and people skills. Because those are the things that will cause them to succeed. They, of course, have the intelligence to learn how to operate a computer. It's, it's easier than it ever was. But those are the things that we're really looking for. We want people whose heads are in the right place. So uh, we will turn people down if we don't, quite frankly, if, if they're too arrogant, right? We literally had a guy come in, we gave him the tour and he said, oh, I already know how to use all this stuff. I'm like, great, congratulations. You don't need us. 
<laughs> then you don't need us. And, and um, really, we, again, this is a difficult career to get into. What I like to say is we only take the people who can't be talked out of it, which is pretty much how we were at their age. Sure. Like we would have done this for, it didn't matter what it, what it took. You know, and I, when I start out, we charge $4.25 an hour, you know. <laughs> so those are the kinds of people we're looking for. We're looking for people who are as obsessed with the process of making records and, and all, the, all of its intricacies and artistic properties as we have been. And we're, we're really trying to be an alternative to uh, other schools. And the other, other schools are all great. And they all have different approaches. And it's great to have four years to immerse yourself in something. We compact all that. We don't have any electives where they don't have to take literature, accounting, or right. whatever, as much as that might serve them. It's really the important stuff packed down. I call it a freeze-dried education. You know, that, I mean, really, I talk to people who studied with us anytime in the last 10 years, like, I'm still looking at my notebook or... I get an email like, now I understand what you're talking about, you know, but we try to get them there faster and hopefully cheaper so that they're not in debt or at least badly in debt. You know, they're more in debt to the tune of a used car than the tune of buying a house when right. they come out because this is a, a profession where unfortunately for better or worse, the entry level job is working for free getting coffee for rock stars and that kind of thing. That, that's one of them, if you're going to follow the traditional route. Now, there are other ways to do it. And I'm actually more and more encouraging the students to follow the entrepreneurial route and set themselves up. If they're going to work for free or not much money or they're going to go through those early stages, I think they should use their energies to further their own fortunes. But we get people that take all those routes. And... We are very fortunate because we get to be at Blackbird, where it is a center of the national recording community in many ways. We get the best of the best here from all around the world, and I drag them in to talk to my students. <laughs> and we, I think it's fair to say we have a pretty good reputation. I think you guys have a great reputation. We're able to, uh, to place the outstanding students with big studios with producers and stuff like that. And we have people really working for some of the bigger producers in, in the world and engineers and here at Blackbird and, and other studios, because I think they understand that we're trying to give them the best, best uh, presentation and the best uh, development. Right. I think you're, you're right. And you hit a few things there too, that I was the director of education at your competitor and mm -hmm. I think Blackbird has a better reputation, not just because of who owns it and the, the gear that's in it, but just a better reputation for the, the quality of student that's coming out of there. And I think there is a difference by being selective, whether it's you being selective of the student or the student realizing they're not in the right place. But I think that helps. You mentioned it's more about attitude. I think that's the foundation of Nashville itself is it's all about being a great hang and it's about being the right person and having a great attitude. So I think that's a great way of looking at it. But the other piece of that is technology and technology is advancing rapidly. So how do you find the, the struggle to keep up with technology and how that applies to the traditional route of 
getting into engineering in the first place? Well, it's interesting because, so I have this concept of, and I think this applies to technology, of uh, horizontal learning and vertical learning. And by horizontal learning is what I think you're talking about, which is new technologies coming, you know, being invented and coming down the path. So the digital workstation, different types of these days, you know, a, the looming AI, which is always fun to uh, get people worked up over and immersive audio. These are the things that are kind of happening right now. So there, there's a lot of that, that new stuff. And that we just try to stay on top of it, try to prognosticate what's going to be useful in the abbreviated time that we have to teach, to teach the students or at least expose them to. But we also, it tends to come here first. In fact, we have like, I'm, I can't show you, but I've got prototypes of stuff in this room. So we're in a good position to be able to do that. But then there's also the vertical learning, which is my concept, but that's the deep stuff, the stuff that doesn't change, right? Which is the attitude, the philosophy, and then basic things like the physics of sound, the different types of microphones and how to use them, the history of audio and how it applies to what we do, which is, I think, more relevant to our profession than it is to a lot of others. You know, even if you're a cinematographer, I don't know how much time they spend teaching you film editing at this point, but here in the professional audio world, there are still many people, many of my friends who record to tape machines, for example, and some of them exclusively to tape machines. So we need to blend the knowledge of older technology, but also the stuff that never changes. For example, when I teach mixing, which is you know, the mixing console behind me, and this whole final process of taking all the individual recorded tracks we make and blending them together and putting effects on them and all that sort of thing. The program that I developed to teach mixing is very non-prescriptive and theoretical. It's basically I teach them aesthetics and storytelling and then how to apply the technology to that. But these are things, you know, the, the entire history of recording is 150 years. And we only had mixing for, what, 60 years of that time. But we have tens of thousands of years of painting and storytelling. Well, give me an example of how you tie that into mixing. So, for example, if somebody has a song to mix, I think a lot of people would say, okay, so the important thing is you have to use this compressor on it or something. You have to put this plug in on it, or you have to set the meter exactly here. I take it from a different perspective. The question is, who is this person that's being depicted? Who is this character that the vocal represents? What is the situation? What is the emotion? Because that's how the people that we're making the records for experience it. They're not going to be pushing their, their shopping cart through the grocery store and going, gee, I wonder what, if that was a U47 or C12 on the vocal. Right. Or they're not going to go, hey, is that the new Lexicon Digital Reverb? They're going to go, this song hits me in the heart and the feelings. Or I don't like this. <laughs> you know, uh, or we need to give them a reason to listen from the beginning to the end of the song and go on the journey 
And if we really do a great job, at the end of it, we want him to say, I want to hear that again. In the face of the modern day where by shouting at Alexa or hitting a switch, they can hear everything that's been recorded in the last 150 years, or play a video game, or see every movie that's ever been made, or make records themselves, or read any literature that's ever been made or have it read to them. So we have to be able to compel people. As I say, the history of recording is short, but the history of storytelling is as old as humans themselves. And I really do think that there are times where beyond learning the technology and how to deal with the computer and all that stuff, our time is as well spent going to an art museum or reading Shakespeare or watching a movie of any kind and, and really watching and learning to understand all the things that make a record work. You know, what's the opening scene? How does the character enter into the scene? You know, we have a sort of natural inborn sense where we evaluate people quickly, right? It probably goes back as long as there have been people because it's a survival mechanism. You see somebody coming at you over the savanna and you want to know, are they friend? Are they foe? Are they trustworthy? Is it your mom? Are they going to give you a cookie? Are they going to hit you with a rock? Th there are other options, but you get the idea. Um, well, that's an innate human sense, I think, probably as much as sight, smell, sound, and so forth. So the art of presenting a character so that you get an idea of, oh, I get it. It's a craggy old guy singing about long lost love. Oh, it's a young bulletproof person with no flaws singing about how happy they are, etc. Like, how do you portray a character and how do you make them interesting enough that anyone is going to care what happens to them? And then how do you tell a story? What happens, right? What happens to that character? What kind of a journey do they go through? And where do they end up? Do they end up where they began? Do they end up a wiser person? Do they end up with more or less understanding of what they've been through? These are things that are universal to every culture. So that's the kind of stuff I talk about when I'm talking about mixing. And I also talk about what plugins to use and how to sure. use them and that sort of thing. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I do counsel them to do things like study mythology because those are all the greatest stories that people have ever come up with. And even if it's just another song about a guy and his truck and his dog and some beer and his guns and his pappy or whatever, you know. It's still a story. You know, how do you make that song stand out from all the other songs about guns, beer and dogs and pappy? And uh, Well, can you relate this character to Icarus? Can you relate this character to Narcissus? Can you relate this character to any other universal or legendary myth. How do you take this, whatever the specific story is, right? It's another song of I love you. And how do you present that in a way that is going to get anyone's attention or keep it? No, I love that approach. We had Mike Errico, a singer songwriter on the show a few weeks back, and he was going over the art of storytelling and how he approaches his songs. And He's an amazing storyteller and uh, taking that information now and tying it into what you're saying in from the production point, I could see how the two could marry each other and create something bigger than the two parts by themselves. And I think that's great. And I think you teaching that to the students is also great. 
My concern right now, I know you say there's constants in technology, in engineering, but there's also pieces that I feel like the generation coming up now are going to miss, just like we miss stuff from the 50s. But they're not going to probably experience the bigger studios like we did. They're probably not going to experience, I mean, you might experience in tracking, I guess. But the way that the industry is going where people are working in smaller studios or working at home, I feel like people are going to miss that interaction. So do you have any thoughts to where the future is going? It's, well, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, the business of recording, of course, changes with the access of, of home recording. That's not new, but it's certainly proliferated and, and become more affordable. And luckily, our students get to work in big fancy studios and they get to see the amazing collaborative process of a bunch of people in Nashville style recording, which doesn't even happen much, even in the big studios in, in LA and New York of an entire band playing music in real time together. And that's fascinating. And hopefully then they get to bring that experience with them and they experience that with their friends and so forth. But I don't feel as doom filled about that. I mean, yes, a lot of the big studios have gone away, although there's always been a lot of change and turnover. And I think real estate prices are probably as much to blame for that as, as changing technology. But there's also a proliferation of artists that have big studios that they just decided, I'd rather spend the money on the studio than on somebody else's studio. Right. And there's still a need for people to engineer in those kinds of settings. And there are certain kinds of music that will always need an acoustic space in a room for people to, to play in and, you know, a larger group. I mean, you know, no one's ever going to do, well, you know, home recording of symphony orchestras or that kind of thing. Um, but I also think that the proliferation of this technology is a wonderful thing. It's a democratizing process and it gives people who have talent or ideas access to the tools and they don't need to go begging to a record company to bankroll them and put them in debt to make a record. They can get their ideas down. They can have access to all sorts of different sounds. I mean, you know, people used to bemoan that the synthesizer came into the drum machine. You know, this is going to be the end of, right. of, uh, of the world and the end of the music business or the end of musicians and that kind of thing. And I just think in some ways, just anything that gets people interested in making music can only be a good thing. Whether they make what I think is good music is completely irrelevant. If they are expressing themselves through it and, and they're happy and they love it, I'd much rather see people making music than consuming it. Oh, absolutely. It's extremely good for everyone. It's good for the brain. It's, a great, it's great for developing your collaborative skills and that sort of thing. And eventually, it may be that people will get lonely making records in their in their bedroom and, and then they'll end up getting in a band or whatever. So it's always going to change. I think as far as the future, it will be as diverse as the people that make it. There'll be people that are making EDM or hip hop in their bedroom and that's all they need and it'll be great. And then there'll be people that want to play bluegrass and they'll be in a, anything from a garage to a patio to a full blown recording studio and it'll be great. So I think there's just, you know, we're already seeing it. There's just more music of every kind. And I can't regard that as a bad thing. 
although I know a lot of grumpy old mainly guys my age go, oh it's terrible all this bad music in the world it's like if they love it and it makes them happy how can it be bad there's still amazing music being uh being made uh it's not like oh in my day we had you know well th th all this sort of grumpy old guy like the you know oh we had led zeppelin and blah 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 or we had this and that yeah that was great but if you can't find great music that's being made now, you're just not trying. Right. It's astonishing what's what's happening now. Now the economics are a different story. But first of all, I think if somebody's making music just to be cynically to just become wealthy, then they're doing it for the wrong reasons, and, and it's quite possible that that will show up in. In the music and people will not be attracted to it at a time where they can access anything that they want so i think i'm just eager to see what happens next i'd love to see a musical change a heavy duty musical revolution happen and i think with people making music on their phones or their laptops or whatever there's probably some genius and they could be anywhere in the world. They could be in Indonesia, could be in Finland. You know, unlike in the past where you had to move to New York or LA and make your fortune and w hope you get picked by a magical Santa Claus in a, at a record <laughs> company. Uh, I just hope that there's another Jacob Collier out there making amazing music in an apartment or uh, anywhere uh, that, will, that will change everything. There are some amazing musicians out there, and I think... Obviously, the internet is giving us access to all of that without having to have a record label to get the word out. And you're talking about people working out of their homes versus the studio and the different environments. And I know that especially some of the modern music can all be confined to a home and to a spare bedroom and you can produce a really good sounding record. So I think if you use the equipment you have at hand, that's more important than wishing that you had something else. And then the one other thing I just touch on before we, we move on is you talk about finding new music. I have children and I listen to the stuff that they're listening to. Matter of fact, I'm going to be in Nashville in a couple of weeks to see the Arctic Monkeys with my 13-year-old. She's just enamored with the Arctic Monkeys. So we're going to go see them. But I've come across a girl recently who's out of Nashville, Royale Lynn. I don't know if you've had a chance to check her music out. But I grew up in Boston, and it was rock music, and I really enjoyed rock music. And I moved to Nashville, and I worked there for years doing country music. And I always enjoyed that combination of making country music a little bit harder, a little bit edgier, and getting to work with some of the independents. I had the ability to do that. But Royale Lynn just knocked it out of the park with her latest single. It's called Six Feet Deep. I don't know who produced it. I don't know who engineered it. I don't know where she recorded it. But it is a country song with such a kick that it, it, it feels like you're listening to a metal song, but it's country music, and, and it's a young girl, and it's just powerful. I, I really enjoy it. But I do want to change gears a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about the recording studio that you, you owned? Yeah, I, I had a studio in Champaign, Illinois from 1980 until 2013 when I moved down here. So that was an, a nice long run and made a ton of records and recordings there, mostly local regional groups, but ended up doing some national stuff and some major label stuff and all of that. And that was uh, 
wonderful experience. Then when we moved down here to Nashville to, um, to be part of the school, I bought the uh, house and studio of Steve Earle, the songwriter. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. He had a, he and uh, this great producer engineer named Ray Kennedy had a house on three acres with a big studio. It was bigger than the studio I had in Illinois, which was in a big old brick warehouse. And I moved all my stuff in there and I've got lots of stuff. It's a, my joke is that I hang out with John McBride, the owner of Blackbird, where we have all the equipment in the world. Because uh, it's like standing next to somebody who's fatter than you in a photograph. You just go, I don't have a lot of gear. This guy has a lot of gear, you know. But I have um, a custom-built console called a Demidio. It's an API console that was custom-made to make, basically to make Credence records on at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Just a ton of microphones and instruments and outboard stuff and we call it the petting zoo just a ton of instruments of all kinds and uh, i had it open for a while down here and then i started writing a book and we had a bunch of stuff we were storing in illinois so we brought it down and filled the studio up with stuff so it's currently non-functional while i finish writing this book but I, I hope to reopen it and put all that gear to use maybe i'll hire some hotshot blackbird academy graduate to that's turn out records in the backyard while I'm <laughs> teaching. <laughs> That's awesome. What, what was the most memorable moment from the studio? Oh, just so many, you know, it's just so many uh, getting to work with some wonderful artists. I mean, I guess the thing that I brag about, which I'm really not entitled to is that I think I'm the first person to record Alison Krauss because she's from that town. And so I can take credit for everything she's ever done, even well, yeah, though that I, makes sense. You know, I have a little to do with it. But so that that was pretty amazing. And she was, you know, great. When I got out of college, I was working for various arts councils in the area. And the our landlord at the uh, arts council was Fred Krauss, her dad. So I would have her age 12 and her mother driving around Champaign County playing at nursing homes and yeah. Yeah, prisons and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I got to work with Adrian Ballou for a couple days in the early 80s, and that was amazing. It was just he lived in that town too. So it was cool to get to see King Crimson hanging out in the local restaurants and that sort of thing. But, you know, so many moments of working with so many wonderful people. That is an amazing town, an amazing music community. It still is. It's just so full of talent, it's unbelievable. I mean, being in Nashville is really great, and it's bigger, but the level of talent in, in Champaign, Illinois is just unreal. So I was so lucky to get to make records there for so long with just uh, unbelievably talented players on every instrument. I mean, it helps to have a university there, but there's just a tradition of a, of a great community. It's, it's actually hard to pick out. Of course, yeah, 33 years, so... You mentioned Alison Krauss, and I had the opportunity for years to work for Bob Bullock, a producer engineer out of Nashville. I know you know who he is. Mm -hmm. So I worked with him for quite a quite a bit of time, and I had the opportunity to go in and work on an Alison Krauss project. And she was as nice as can be. I mean, very, very nice person, super nice. And for a short period of time, I was dating her background singer before, before I actually uh, got married. So if my wife's listening, that was before. 
but I was dating her background singer and she was nice enough to ask me over her house for Thanksgiving. And she was just an incredible person all around, just very sweet. So it was, it was yeah. definitely her, a good time. Her son went through the Blackbird Academy. Did he? Yeah, That's he was awesome. 16 at the time. He's doing great. I'm very proud of him. He was 16 at the time? He was 16, yeah. Oh, wow. And we've had a few 16-year-olds come through, and they're all doing amazingly. One just got back from touring as Hans Zimmer's guitar player. I don't take credit for that, but he, <laughs> he does a bunch of session work. And, and uh, there's a wonderful young woman named Cecilia Castleman, who was 16 when she went through our program. And she's just made a record where her backup band is Pino Palladino on bass, the bass player for The Who. And Abe Laboreal Jr., Paul McCartney's drummer, is her drummer on the program. And Don was produced it. Oh. And uh, she's doing really well. She's been opening for Cheryl Crow and people. And I'm so proud of her. She's doing great. And yeah, so she's got amazing talent. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, we do this thing here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody behind the scenes that doesn't typically get any credit. Do you have anybody behind the scenes in your life that has helped you get to where you are that you'd like to shine a little light on? Oh, there are so many. Um, there are so many. I will shine a light on a guy named Skip Paul. Skip Paul had a guitar store in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, called Axe in Hand. And um, he was a sort of a Mark Twain-like figure, very funny and dry and witty and well-educated, and a really nice man who put up with me relentlessly hanging around this place from the age of 12 on. And I think if he hadn't humored me when I asked stupid questions like, what is that? And pointing at a bass guitar. <laughs> uh, I probably would be an, a lawyer now and much less happy than I am. So um, that's, that's him. But there are so many people that, are, that have been helpful in so many ways. Everybody, everybody has an influence on you, positive or negative. Just being around people and especially in this industry, like you said, you're constantly learning. That reminded me too, you mentioned George Massenberg earlier. I was on a panel speaking with him over at Webster University. Mm -hmm. And it was right before my 13-year-old was born. I mean, it was like the day she was supposed to be born. And he asked me on stage, he goes, why are you here? And I said, well, George, I said, you invented the parametric EQ, which I use every day. And the baby hasn't done a thing for me yet. And I just said it. I wasn't thinking about what I said or what I did. And everyone was laughing. I'm like, oh, my wife's going to kill me. He was just a funny guy. Yeah, I have great respect for him. He is a true genius. Yeah. And, uh, and an excellent human being as well. So we're really lucky to have him come in and talk with the students. He's He has a great overview of everything and wicked sense of humor. Yeah, there's there's no one better. I mean, all you have to say, I mean, the guys had like six different professions and been at the top of all of them. You know, he produced Earth, Wind and Fire, including, you know, September and working with Linda Ronstadt and so forth. He was, so he was top producer, engineer, equipment designer, acoustician, audio educator, 
programmer. That's six right there. So it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And a, a place like Axe and Hand Guitar or Blackbird or anywhere else, you know, they're all little miniature cultures. I mean, that was one of the things that drew me to music when I got interested in music, which is, it was the old hippie days. And uh, to go to a record store where they had black light posters and it smelled kind of funny. And, <laughs> you know, there were all these hippies behind the, the, the counter who could, you know, turn you on to stuff that you'd never heard of. It was another world that you wanted to be a part of. And so were music stores. You know, there was all the gear and shiny guitars and cool guitar players and people coming in and out, you know, that was something that you, that you wanted to be a part of. And I, I think it's still the same way. You know, every recording studio is like a little, I call them pirate ships. It's like a little mini floating culture of its own. And everyone has its own feeling and, and its own in jokes and all of that. Well, I think you get the same group of people that are around each other for a long enough period of time, that type of stuff happens. And it's micro groups. I mean, Nashville is that community as a whole, but there's so many microgroups within Nashville. The different producers have their own teams of people that work with them on a regular basis. Even when I was working for Bob Bullock, you know, I was there on every session. And then we had all the same musicians there, you know, regularly. So you just become friendly with people. One of my favorite guitar players, um, Bob used to use Chris Losinger all the time. He was amazing. But another one of my favorites was Jeff King because he was just hilarious, just a hilarious guy. And he made being in the studio fun. So it took a lot of the pressure off when people are, like you said, good to be around and have that ability to have a good sense of their own awareness of what's going on around them and to take the pressure and stress off of a, what could be a very stressful situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, attitude is everything. The John McBride tells all the students attitude is 99% of the gig. <laughs> and that's true whether you're on the road or at home or... Oh, yeah. In the recording studio, which is a bit of a pressure cooker sometimes. I would always rather hire somebody for the right attitude and teach them than hire somebody who knows it with the wrong attitude. Very similar to what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Mark is not only an amazing talent, but he is a great person. So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 26. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.